according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. I tell you what, this time let's go to Luke, Luke 22. Our episode is featured in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is episode 25, Betrayal, Arrest, Desertion. We have covered four of the eight points of study. Betrayal, arrest, desertion. It's an episode that has eight points of study, and we've covered four of them. We're ready uh, this morning for point five, which is Peter's sword. Under point one, I gave you the sequence, what I think is the simplest sequence. Uh, to harmonize the four gospel accounts. Uh, the arrival of Judas with the armed soldiers is featured in all four gospels. The kiss is not mentioned in the gospel of John. Judas's kiss and the private word that he receives from Jesus, I believe it comes in the form of a question, uh, that's recorded in the synoptic gospels. By synoptics, we're referring to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then the triple I am, the triple I am statement, or some people call it the double I am statement, um, is uh, only featured in the Gospel of John. It is not featured in uh, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, where the Lord asks and challenges the arresting officers, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he replies, I am. And they, they fall over. And it uh, makes me laugh, I think, each time I read it. <laughs> you know, um, they, uh, they are, have an arrest warrant, and his name is on the arrest warrant as Jesus of Nazareth. That's his human name. But when he replies with the I am, we understand that is the significance of Yahweh, that's the significance of the Lord. So they come to arrest Jesus of Nazareth and he identifies himself as I am and they fall over. <laughs> in a remarkable uh, interaction between deity and humanity there and the majesty of his, uh, of his divine name. Uh, in any event, that's uh, point C, the triple I am. I believe it comes before the sword incident. Uh, the sword incident is mentioned in all four Gospels, and because of the order there relating the sword to after the I Am declaration, we put it in this order. Peter's sword covered by all four Gospels. Uh, and this, by the way, also includes the healing of the, of, the, of the slave. Then the message of irony. The message of irony. It's only covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This wonderment that Jesus expresses when he says, is this really what you're doing? You're coming out to arrest me as a robber. You're coming to arrest me as a, as a terrorist, as a bandit. And uh, I was with you every day in the temple, teaching publicly, and you never arrested me there. Okay? And that's not for lack of trying. <laughs> they actually made those attempts in the temple. They were not permitted to make those arrests in the temple. Those attempts were not granted to succeed while he was teaching publicly in the temple. No, he has to be apprehended like a bandit. He has to be numbered as a transgressor. He has to be counted as uh, as a bandit. He's going to be crucified in between two bandits, which we see. Same term, same language that he uses in this message of irony, this, uh, this uh, wonderment of it all. So we'll take a look at that. The fleeing disciples is covered by Matthew and Mark. Uh, I think it's implied in Luke, but it's expressly stated in Matthew and Mark. And then the naked young man is only featured in the Gospel of Mark and likely is a reference to Mark himself. So, uh, this is where we are, and we're ready now for the fourth uh, element of this outline, which will come to us under main point five, Peter's sword. Before we do, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are humble under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have, the freedom that we have to assemble together this morning. It is a grace opportunity and we want to redeem this grace opportunity to uh, study, to show ourselves approved before your face. Workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We ask as the word of truth is rightly divided this morning that you would bless our time together, that you would set aside distractions, that you would open the eyes of our understanding. Father, we desire to learn more of your word. We would learn more of you in such a way that we are transformed 
Father. The renewing of our mind will transform our very being. I thank You for the Christian way of life that molds us into the, uh, the image of Your Son. I thank You for our predestination that we are uh, to be conformed to the image of Your Son. And I thank You that this morning is a part of this, Father, as we, as we take in this eternal truth. Father, I pray especially that we would understand uh, what it means to take up the sword, what it means to be in, uh, in rebellion against the, uh, the arresting authorities, Father, as Peter attempted to do. Uh, Father, and, and what would be our destiny if we would choose to uh, try to conquer Rome in our own, <laughs> in our own military ability. Father, uh, pray that we would learn these lessons. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Interesting morning, isn't it? To reach taking up the sword. All right. I seem to have some discouraged friends this morning on Facebook, which was uh, interesting. But I also have some rejoicing friends on Facebook. And uh, so what do I do? <laughs> do I defriend? Do I defriend half my list? And if I do, which half do I defriend? All right. All right. In any event. Luke 22, as we take a look at the sword, um, and we can read this in all four Gospels, uh, he's left unnamed in Luke. It's only John that tells us that Peter is the, is the disciple here that, uh, that grabs the sword. Um, so Luke 22:47, when he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? It is phrased as a question. And I believe it's best to take each of these accounts as a question. The one in Matthew is not translated as a question, but it could be. And I think it's better that it is. Uh, when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Luke is the only gospel record that counts uh, that um, that records the question being asked. They deliberated this. They either deliberated this internally or amongst themselves or one or two of them said, you know, there were only two that even had a sword. Um, but they, uh, they did ask, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? Interestingly enough, they don't wait for his answer. <laughs> you notice this? He doesn't give them an answer. And this right here, I could stop the message right now at 10.07 a.m., and say, I've preached the entire message. Okay? I would like for believers to ponder this <laughs> and to ask themselves, is this the pattern of my prayer life? <laughs> do I go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, would you have me do such and such? And then immediately, without waiting for the answer, we just assume we know what the answer is and we take action. We take action and we say, well, we prayed about it. <laughs> and we didn't stop to wait and we didn't stop to listen and maybe we didn't stop to listen because we were afraid that if we did that the answer would be no and so we simply ask um, you know Lord shall we meaning Lord I'm about to please bless what I'm doing okay and it's, it's a sad thing because what I'm describing is common common and it shouldn't be we shouldn't uh, go to the father in prayer and ask if this could be your will when what we really mean is father make this your will because this is what i want you to do and i think all too often we express it father if it could be your will and we don't really mean it so here it is uh all right i won't stop at 1007 we'll keep going but uh, there, there is a, there's an entire Sunday sermon right there in, uh, in that one verse. So, uh, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And we can go to the Gospel of John and find out that the, the one of them had a name and his name was Peter. And uh, the slave had a name. His name was Malchus. And uh, we'll start to learn more about that here in uh, today's message. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. Stop, no more of this. And uh, so we learn what his answer would have been had they waited long enough for him to give the answer in, uh, in the first place. 
Now, this stop no more of this does get expanded. It gets expanded a little bit more in the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm going to turn over there in a, in a little bit because it's in Matthew where not only does he say stop, but uh, he instructs him to put the sword back in the sheath and he actually gives the admonishment that those who take the sword will perish by the sword in a, in a verse that gets so often mistranslated that uh, people think it says something it doesn't say. You know, because I'm talking about living by the sword, but it, it does say those who take the sword. And we'll talk about that. And we'll talk about the assumptions that underlie the assumed translation. But first of all, I did want to start with the Gospel of Luke. And I want to back up just a little bit to understand that when you look back to before they ever left the upper room, the Lord told them to take two swords. Two swords were declared to be sufficient by the Lord. Why does Peter have a sword? And who was the other disciple besides Peter that had the other sword? Right? We ask ourselves, or I ask myself, um, you know, Peter's the disciple who drew the sword. Who was the disciple that did not draw the sword? I'm curious. The scripture doesn't say, so we don't know. But it's like, you know, Peter got out of the boat. <laughs> we know the other 11 disciples stayed in the boat. We, we, we criticize Peter for walking on water and then losing his faith and starting to sink and saying, Lord, help me and, and all that. But I don't want to criticize Peter too much because the other 11 didn't get as far as he did. You know, he, he at least got out of the boat and made it halfway to where the Lord was standing. The others did not. Uh, but this is, this is the nature. This is Peter's, you know, personality. He acts first and thinks later and, you know, speaks without thinking and different things. Um, and so here we see it again. We see the impetuousness. We just see the impulse and uh, this desire. This should, Lord, this shall never happen to you kind of attitude. And he said it out loud before and got rebuked for it. Now he's not saying it out loud, but he's might as well because he's taking action to keep Jesus from getting arrested. And he's going to get rebuked for it. The Lord's going to say, you know, how then will the Scriptures be fulfilled? Peter, if you're successful, if you keep me from getting arrested, how then will the Scriptures be fulfilled? What are you really accomplishing in this? So, uh, things that we need to consider. Not just what we do, but how what we do fits into the plan of God and what He is doing. And how will His plan be fulfilled if we're obedient? And how will His plan be fulfilled if we're disobedient? Okay? Because guess what, folks? His plan will be fulfilled. <laughs> yeah. And we're much better off if we are cooperative for blessing instead of uh, uncooperative for discipline and uh, seeing Him fulfilled in, uh, in spite of us instead of through us. All right. So let's back up just a little bit. You'll see it here in verse 38. And this happens here in the midst of this. Um, and, and I like this. This is... Uh, we, we taught this not too long ago and... And uh, so here we have it again. All right. Um, this dispute about who's going to be the greatest, starting in verse 24, and his message there that you know this is this is the Gentile attitude. They like to lord it over, and uh, they like to they like to assign their benefactors. But this is not the way with you. And uh, it's not the one reclining at the table. It's the one that's serving. That's regarded in heaven as being the greater, the, the one who serves. He says, for I am among you as the one who serves. And we're not to seek the, uh, the um, being served capacity. We're to strive in the serving capacity. And then he says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you. And it's just as. What's the just as mean? It means through the trials and once the trials are done. Okay. Just as my Father has granted me a kingdom through the trials and once those trials are done, so I grant you through your trials and once your trials are done that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It's a unique award that's assigned to the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Paul's not entitled to this. Barnabas is not entitled to this. Other church age apostles are not entitled to this. It's only the twelve. Apostles of the Lamb. Okay, Not every church age apostle was an apostle of the Lamb. But these that are apostles before the church age begins, including Matthias, these twelve are not only church age apostles, but they are apostles of the Lamb. The only twelve apostles during the dispensation of Israel. And so they will judge the twelve tribes of Israel. as part of their, 
uh, ruling capacity that they will have during the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Understand what this pending church age is all about. It's going to be an age of conflict. It's going to be an age of difficult uh, circumstances. It's going to be an age of unparalleled satanic attack. And you see what Satan's given permission to do in the book of Job. And we understand that God draws limits on all satanic activity. Well, those limits are uh, pushed back a bit related to the church. We call this the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. It doesn't say Satan has demanded permission, but that permission has been denied. Notice what it says. Satan has demanded permission, but I have prayed for you. <laughs> okay? Because that permission is indeed granted. It is the age of satanic sifting. The dispensation of the church is the stewardship of satanic sifting. We do wrestle against principalities and powers, rulers and authorities. We have armaments. We have the intercessory prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church age is engaged in conflict in uh, the, the spiritual realm. I have prayed for you that when your faith, that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned, again, strengthen your brothers. In other words, uh, <laughs> uh, your faith may not fail, but you're going to have some failures along the way. And when you have turned again, when you're back in the light, when you've learned your lessons, now you've got the opportunity to strengthen your brothers. And that's what the church age is. We get to encourage one another. We get to strengthen one another. And, and we strengthen one another not by bragging about how we do everything right. We strengthen one another by uh, comforting one another and encouraging one another and admonishing one another based on the lessons we learn when we've not done everything right. And say, you know what? Um, you don't want to blow it here. I've blown it there and it's not good. And you're able to uh, return back to to uh, uh, the Christian way of life on a positive volition basis and teach your brothers the lessons you learn the hard way. Maybe they can learn it the easy way, as it were. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. Everybody's, you know, full of zeal and can talk the talk, but what's the reality? And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. Now, all of this is the backdrop for when he gives them permission to grab the two swords, and it happens here in 35 through 38, but understand that it comes following the description of the angelic conflict, following the description of, the, of Satan demanding permission to sift you like wheat, and the need for the Lord's prayer, and then uh, the Lord praying on our behalf, and the needs for us to return and strengthen one another. Okay? That's how we engage in the angelic conflict. We do not engage in the angelic conflict by taking up arms and, and leading an insurrection against temporal life authority. Verse 35, And he said to them, When I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, No, nothing. In other words, the procedures he put in place for their training ministry in the dispensation of Israel, the procedures he put in place were sufficient. And they didn't suffer by following his prescription in the dispensation of Israel. When you follow the, the instructions that are given for your stewardship, you're going to be blessed every time. And so they walked by faith in that training ministry. And they, they followed the, the prescription that was given to them for their training ministry in the dispensation of Israel. Now, he says, but now, Okay. In the age coming up, remember in the upper room, he's giving them the, the preview of what's going to happen here in, in uh, 50 days. But now, here's your new instructions. Now. And what's the difference? The difference is the traitor has departed. The traitor has gone to fetch the soldiers. The, the difference is now the, the, the cross is about to be achieved. The difference is now the... The Satan has demanded permission. Now we, we're entering into a new stewardship. But now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along. You may, uh, you may go through some economic difficulties. You may have to, to pay your own freight. 
You may have to uh, you may have to minister in an age of grace when those you're ministering to don't uh, have capacity to express grace. Hello, Paul and the Corinthians. All right, you may uh, you may be tent making. You may have uh, you may have other financial support that you may not be receiving because of the difficult times that uh, the church age represents. So whoever has a money belt, take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. In other words, you may have to prioritize between uh, comfort and safety. (laughs) You may have to have discernment. Sure, it's nice to have a spare coat, or it's nice to have a coat. But if it's a choice of a coat or a sword, and push comes to shove, what gets pushed and what gets shoved? You're going to have to prioritize. And the Lord specifically says... The priority here is your personal safety over your personal comfort. Given the nature of the church age. We deal with difficult times. It may be that the married man has to act as a single man. What's your attitude related to the difficult times in which we live? Alright. Some of this connects well with 1 Corinthians 7 and some other... Aspects there that we've taught in other classes. Alright, so whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Why? What do you need a sword for? Okay. We're going to see it's personal self-defense. It's not It's not uh, for um, the overthrow of the government. Um, if I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. All right, so the cross is pending. His arrest is imminent. It's going to happen this night. They need swords. He does not. He is not taking a sword. He is not going to resist his arrest. Scripture has to have its fulfillment. But they can't get arrested. They are to be spared on this night. He's actually going to take steps for them to flee. Why does he want them to flee? Well, because there's a time to flee. (laughs) There's a time for everything under the sun, and tonight's their time to flee. Scripture promised that they would. If they uh, they were on board with the plan of God, they would. Sooner rather than later. In any event. So then they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. Now, not eleven swords, not twelve swords. We know there's at least 11 there, and Jesus would make 12. Judas has departed already. Was Matthias here that night? Probably so. Was Judas Barsabbas there that night? Probably so. Was Mark there that night? Possibly. Who was the owner of the house? Who's the one that furnished the upper room? Was he there as well? Why did he have two swords anyway? And he said to them, it is enough. And who put those swords in the upper room? You know, when we're told that this man of faith prepared an upper room, I think these swords are part of that preparation. He prepared tables, he prepared food, he prepared lamb, he prepared wine, he prepared bread, he prepared a bowl and a towel for the foot washing, he prepared everything that was in that upper room. I believe he also prepared these two swords. It is enough. It is enough. So these two swords were declared to be sufficient by the Lord. This is sub point A. The two swords were declared to be sufficient by the Lord. They were sufficient for personal self-defense in difficult days, but not intended for armed insurrection against the governing authorities. All right. Notice there's no mention of armament. There's no mention of helmet or, or breastplate or shield or any other type of weaponry. He's told, uh, you know, take, take a money belt, take a bag, and uh, if, you, if you have to make a choice between a sword and a coat, sell the coat and buy a sword. But nothing about, uh, uh, you know, the, the other um, weaponry and armaments and, and logistics that would be required if, in fact, the church age was designed to be a uh, secular military campaign. It's not. Nothing about armor. Nothing about siege weaponry. Nothing about uh, uh, overthrowing the governmental powers. 
And here's the thing. Throughout church history, two mistakes have been made. The sword has been used for uh, political objectives, or the sword has been used for spiritual objectives, faith objectives, enforcing your theology, removing the heretics. <laughs> okay? Um, Jesus Christ never authorizes the sword for armed insurrection against the governing authorities or to enforce matters of faith. That's not why the sword is given. You know, we teach doctrine, we teach the scriptures as we're convicted and as we're led and, and all the rest. Um, and, and you are taught by the Holy Spirit and you believe what you believe. You know what you know. You understand what you understand. You believe what you believe. You're convicted of what you're convicted of. And that's between you and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> okay? And uh, we don't follow up our teaching with the enforcement mechanism of physical violence upon those that fail to conform to our dogma. See. But do you understand how unusual this is? I'm talking about the history of the church age. Say, since, well, to be fair, since Constantine. Okay, because prior to Constantine, the, the church didn't have the, the power of the sword. But since Constantine, when the church was granted secular authority, <laughs> how many times has the sword been used to remove those that don't conform? Okay. And it's interesting. So, uh, again, as we look through the pattern here, they, uh, I sent you out, and uh, everything applied here is to be understood in the context of being sent out. That is, what is our sent out function as so send I you? Uh, we are sent out into this world as aliens and strangers and ambassadors. We have a, uh, a gospel. And in the process of being sent out, we're going to have some dangers along the way. If you want more on that, then come back tonight. We've got uh, dangers on the rivers, dangers on the road, dangers from countrymen, dangers in the city, dangers uh, in all the things there. When you are traveling and you're um, out in this fallen world, there are dangers. And you shouldn't be... Uh, uh, a, a naive moron and not have your eyes open to the, to the dangers of the world in which we live. Alright, so two swords is sufficient. It's sufficient to defend this party of eleven. Alright. Secondly now, taking the sword. Let's go over to Matthew 26 and look at the admonition there, taking the sword. The verb is lombano. Taking the sword is not living by the sword. And yet that's what's usually cited when it's recited. Why? Because living is opposed to dying. And if, if you live, then you die. Kind of a corollary there is how it often gets misquoted or so forth. That you're going to die by the sword because you live by the sword. You're a violent person. And uh, it's used to defend Christian pacifism. That if you ever touch a sword even one time, then, uh, you know, then uh, God's going to curse you. It's not what it says. It's not what it says. And that's not what we're, that's not what we are, um, I mean, that would, that would be contradictory to the Lord's statement that it is sufficient. The Lord told them that two swords is sufficient. He allowed them to take these swords. He even instructed them. If they don't have a sword, they need one. Sell your coat and buy a sword. So we have to find an understanding of these messages that harmonize properly Matthew with Luke and the, the, the Gospel accounts here. When he says, put your sword away, put your sword back into its place. What's its place? Where does the sword belong? In the sheath. That's right. Uh, or your, your gun belongs in the holster. Until 
and only until you, the necessity arises to make use of it. All right. Put your sword back into its place. For all those who, and here's Lombano, all those who take or take up, we have to understand what is the what is the sense of this, not only in its context, but in its in its um, lexical, you know, semantic range. What are the possible different ways we could we could understand this? But what is the way, the best way that we could understand this that harmonizes with the correlating passages that say you need to have a sword? You need to have a sword. It doesn't say uh, it doesn't say why do you have that sword? You have no business owning a sword. No, it is your sword. And it has a place. So put your sword back into its place. For those who take the sword shall perish by the sword. Shall perish by the sword. Now, what is this about? Taking the sword is not living by the sword. What is it? Taking the sword inappropriately is the usurpation of civil authority. Taking the sword inappropriately because who does the sword belong to who does the sword belong to when uh, other than for personal self-defense who does the sword belong to the sword belongs to Caesar the sword belongs to the governing authorities for every application other than personal self-defense the sword belongs to the governing authorities okay the Bible, the Bible does validate capital punishment, yes. And in fact, it uses language very similar to this. That whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Alright? And so whoever takes the sword, in other words, if you murder somebody, you're going to lose your life. That's required by the law. That's required by God's standard of, ju of justice. So other than your own personal self-defense, what else is... The Bible sanctions capital punishment. The Bible sanctions just war. The Bible sanctions uh, the, the execution of criminals. Those are all sanctioned by Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament alike. But we don't take vengeance in our own hands. We leave it in God's hands or those agents that He has so assigned. Okay? And it's good for us to understand this. We can add, by the way, we can add, in addition to Romans 13, 1-4, Romans 12, 19, I think we can also add Genesis 9 uh, to this, uh, which is the, um, the uh, passage I think that's alluded to here related to uh, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Jesus adopts that when he says whoever takes the sword, in other words, inappropriately, out of place, shall perish by the sword. Genesis 9, um, Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it, from every man, from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed, for, he is in, the, for in the image of God he made man. This is the fundamental reason why capital punishment is mandated. Not simply because, well, it provides for an orderly society. Yes, it does. It's a side effect. But the, the original uh, assignment of capital punishment is because murder is an attack on the image of God. Likewise, from the life of a beast. If the animal realm kills a human being, that animal is to be put down. Why? Are we teaching that animal a lesson? Are we, are we punishing that animal? Is, is that animal paying back his debt to society? Is it, is, it a, uh, is it a deterrent to other animals that might be tempted to commit murder? Okay. See, these are all of the, the, the red herrings that are, that are falsely thrown out there as the debate about capital punishment rages in the midst of biblicists versus non-biblicists. No, the imperative for capital punishment is to defend the image of God. In any event. For the Lord is the avenger. The Lord is the avenger. He actually avenges Himself. 
the blood of Abel was crying out to him from the ground. And he came down to investigate. Alright. Taking the sword inappropriately is the usurpation of civil authority. And this is a very common use of lumbano to take, to seize, to take something that has not been given. It's one thing to receive. And sometimes lumbano means to receive if it is the corollary to something that is given. But sometimes lumbano is to take inappropriately if there has been if it's not been given. And that's what we have to be that's why it's legitimate to evaluate the, the range of lumbano and how it's used and how it's used in context and how it's used here. And so if you take something that's not been given, we understand it in a certain way as opposed to if you take something that has been given. And so we ask ourselves, has the sword been given? Has the sword been given for you to resist secular authority? Or has the sword been given to secular authority? Let's ask ourselves. And then let's see what Scripture says. And you say, well, it's not the secular authority I like, so I don't care. <laughs> Careful. All right. Romans 13, 1 through 4. And um, understand this context. Understand how chapter 13 is a follow-up to chapter 12. It doesn't sit by itself. It's not an isolation. Every person, and uh, there's no footnote, there's no fine print in the Greek. Okay? It doesn't say every person except Pastor Bob, or every person who except you, or every person. And by the way, it's not even every believer. The laws of divine establishment are universal for believers and unbelievers alike. Principles of marriage, principles of family, principles of nationalism, principles of civil authority. What God has granted for the orderly function of, of humanity is universal. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. So therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. You say, well, that doesn't include this authority. This authority is wicked. God, this authority, um, God didn't assign this authority. Every authority which exists, there is no authority except from God. If it has authority over you, it's by the directive or permissive will of God. It's either for our blessing or for, it's for our discipline. And the book of Daniel makes that clear as well. He, he puts, he installs kings, he removes kings. He sets over it whomever he wishes, even the basest of man. Okay? So it doesn't say uh, submit to the governments you like. Those which are, exist are established by God. Therefore, Whoever resists authority has, been opposed, has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, that is, if they're operating according to God's design. Uh, if, if, they're, if they're there for your discipline, then they could be a cause for fear. Okay? But for evil, do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. Again, as designed, if it is in place for your blessing, this is what it's going to be. If it's in place for your discipline, it's still what it's going to be, but it's going to be a minister to you for good as it works together for good as your discipline accomplishes what it needs to accomplish in your national repentance. Does that make sense? I should say that again. <laughs> okay. It is a minister for good. Either immediate good or working together for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. There is a purpose. God doesn't do anything without purpose. God actually designed principles of individual volition, 
marital, uh, the ordinance of marriage, the, the institution of family, the institution of nations. He separated the nations by their languages. Uh, all of these are by God's design for our blessing. When we violate those, we decide we're going to create, uh, you know, marriages contrary to God's design, family structures contrary to God's design. National and international organizations contrary to God's design. Well, we've, uh, we're going to reap the consequences of departing from His design. It is a minister of God, an avenger. Now see, the same language, avenger, is the, is the focus when blood is shed improperly. It has to be avenged. And that's what the sword is. It's an avenger. It's an avenger. And the state is the one that bears it. An avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, as we look at this, as we look at the context for this, notice what it follows. What it follows is chapter 12. What follows is our spiritual life within the church that then gives way to our temporal life in the world. All right? And so we start with the renewing of our minds. It starts with... Uh, presenting our bodies a living and holy sacrifice, our spiritual service of worship. Chapter 12 is our spiritual walk. Chapter 12 is how we're not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind, demonstrating the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, making use of our spiritual gifts for the edification of the body, not to overthink, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. In other words, to have our thinking transformed where we're humble before the Lord. And we serve one another. We have many members in one body and all members do not have the same function. And we have gifts that differ. Let's use these gifts according to the proportion of our faith. In our service, in our teaching, in our exhortation, in our giving, in our leading, in our mercy showing. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. Now, everything that we've seen so far, is this, is this all humanity or is this us? Okay? This is us. Chapter 12 is for believers. Chapter 12 is for um, brethren. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Chapter 12 is not for all humanity. It's not laws of divine establishment for believers and unbelievers alike. It's for believers only. How would an unbeliever let love be without hypocrisy? <laughs> an unbeliever has no, no potential even for agape love. We agape because he agaped us. All right. Pardon my poor grammar there. Um, Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. How does an unbeliever apply that? He can't. The whole scope of this is for believers and particularly believers within a local church. Be devoted to one another. What's the scope of that? Brothers and sisters in a fellowship. Brothers and sisters in a confederation of saints. What we call the local church. This is the, the, um, the, uh, the scope of this. It's all related to the local church. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. This is the win-win. You know, I may prefer something, but you prefer something else, so I give preference to you. My, my sacrificial love says you're more important than me. And your sacrificial love says I'm more important than you. And so it's a win-win when it goes both directions at the same time. And we were able to fulfill these uh, reciprocal one another imperatives. All right. So we have gifts that differ. And they're given and we exercise them accordingly. We're exercising them to edify one another. We have many members in one body and all members do not have the same function. So our gifts, our ministries, and our effects are designed within the, the scope of the local church. Okay, Not the church universal. Is my pastor teacher gift designed for the church universal? Or is it designed for Austin Bible Church? Why don't I go down the street and tell the... Catholics, what's wrong with their theology, or the Lutherans, or the Methodists, or the Pentecostals? Why don't I? Why am I not dedicated to fixing all the bad doctrine in the country? Why limit it to the country? How about globally? <laughs> well, who am I? I'm going to straighten out all this theology everywhere. But I'm commanded to shepherd the flock of God among you. 
Okay, exercising oversight. We see the, the locality that we also notice that the, uh, the gifts are given by Jesus Christ in Ephesians 4 to local churches. See, so I want to use them accordingly. Uh, my gift has been given to this flock. So then we, we, we recognize, uh, I don't think it's even deniable, that the, the giftedness is primarily for the sake of the flock, the, the local church, as assigned by Jesus Christ. These are all the one another imperatives. Um, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Is that every believer on planet Earth? Or it starts right here. It starts right here. Okay. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, some people try to say, well, now between verse 13 and verse 14, we... Uh, we, we, we stepped out of the church for a minute. Now we're talking about the, the mistreatment that unbelievers would... No, I don't believe we stepped out of the local church at all. When you look at verse 16, we see we're still in the local church. <laughs> right? Be of the same mind toward one another. I don't think we stepped out of the local church at all. I think this context stays in the local church. In other words, bless those who persecute you inside the local church. Your brother here that did you dirt. You say, oh, well, that would never happen. <laughs> All right. Persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Again, that's in the context of right here, this local church. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Now, there it does expand to, the, to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Now, here's why I, I think this is remarkable, and I think you have to look at verse 19 and realize it doesn't sit by itself. And it forms a, a, a link, if you will, or a bridge for the, the change of, of realm when we transition from chapter 12 into chapter 13. Never take your own revenge beloved but leave room for the wrath of God for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay saith the Lord okay and now we start to understand okay now there's a basis for Deuteronomy now having an application in the church age what is that basis how do I make this application and as the context goes from inside the local church now to the secular authorities that are over me I realize what the uh, what the uh, emphasis of this is supposed to be how do I relate to those that are outside this flock? And we start to see it here. All right. So taking the sword inappropriately, the usurpation of civil authority, taking the sword that's not given to me. The sword's not given to me. The sword's given to the secular authorities. The sword for, I can't declare war. I can't declare capital punishment. My king can declare war. And he should consider the cost before he does so. <laughs> okay? Or else he's going to lose on the battlefield and I'm going to suffer. Um, the, the authority to declare war. Okay? The authority to execute criminals. The authority to bear the sword for all functions other than individual personal self-defense. Um, is not given to me. We want to understand that. So taking... I, I believe we could say taking inappropriately, taking uh, the sword inappropriately, the usurpation of civil authority. And those who do, if you shed man's blood, your blood will be shed. You will perish by the sword. You commit murder, whether you're a believer or not, Caesar is going to execute you. Okay? I thought that was interesting years ago when um, the governor, uh, when when... George Bush was the governor, and this lady that she was a female murderer, and, and she got saved and got real, you know, full of Jesus and everything. And I, I don't mock that. I, th I think she was truly saved. Uh, but um, was that a, a get out of death row free card? Is that should she not be subject to capital punishment because she was sentenced to death? Uh, but, but now that she's a Christian, should she somehow not be subject to, should she not reap what she's sown and, and, and so forth? And I thought that the statement uh, that was made when he denied to commute her sentence, uh, you know, was, you know, matters of, of uh, faith or 
between her and the Lord and her soul is redeemed by the, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and she's going to go to heaven when she dies. And she's going to die when the, when the state puts her to death. See, I forget the exact wording of it, but I remember this is years and years ago now, but uh, I remember uh, reading those news accounts and thinking that it was compatible with the Scriptures as, uh, as I am convicted of the Scriptures. So, we see it here. Two swords were declared to be sufficient. Secondly, taking the sword is not living by the sword. It's not living by the sword. And so it's not, uh, it's not, this verse does not authorize us to justify Christian pacifism and that somehow no believer should, uh, no believer should be in the military, no believer should be a police officer, no believer should be uh, in a career path whereby they might be expected to, um, to uh, inflict violence you know, in any capacity. And and this, by the way, it's, there's it's branches of of Christianity pursue pacifism, and they use this verse to and similar verses to uh, to justify it. Uh, a lot of the believers in Ukraine have a real tough time if they find out that I used to be in the army. They have a terrible time with that. I've had a almost to the point of weeping. Like Pastor Bob, you used to be in the army, and they they can't understand that, and they they. To them, it's like, I, I, I can't be saved. You know, how could I have eternal life? And, and, and <laughs> well, what I've learned is, is that first of all, they've got a lot of legalism that, that's a part of what they're dealing with. But then beyond that, what their exposure to military is the brutality of the Soviet military that rapes and murders and, and as I mentioned, unbelievable things. And they are under the belief that we do too. Absolutely convinced that Americans do the rape and plunder and all the stuff that that they do. Okay, and so I, I've never yet. I've tried. I've tried. I've tried. And for the people that I've had these conversations with, with the Ukrainian nationals, I've had these conversations with, that the American military does not rape and plunder like the Soviet military rapes and plunders. Okay, and the Nazis rape and plunder. I mean, you understand their culture was plundered repeatedly. In, in, in the last century. And uh, from the Germans to the Russians to the Germans to the Russians and, uh, and so forth. Anyway, you, you deal with different cultures, you deal with different passages, and this is one that's used to justify pacifism, that if somehow you uh, live by the sword, then uh, you're gonna, God's going to get you for that. That, uh, that you're a man of violence and God's going to uh, assign wrath to you on that basis. I believe it's a misapplication. All right. Thirdly, then, what I think is interesting, when he says, let's stay in Matthew, Matthew 26, uh, Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. <laughs> and then verse 53, or do you think, do you think, and I, and I should adopt this myself, I think this is more edifying than what are you thinking. <laughs> okay. Because if you ask a teenager, what are you thinking? There's no good answer to that, all right? Because generally speaking, they're not thinking, or whatever they're thinking is screwed up and wrong. Uh, or, you know, when, 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 you're, when you're frustrated and you come to somebody and you say, what are you thinking? Okay, it's just, it's, it's, it's rhetorical. Okay, you don't want the, there's no good answer to that. Um, but when you phrase it this way, when you say, or do you think... Do you think? Now you start to, you lay out there what the flawed thought process might be and you show how insane it is. You show how insane it is. And so uh, you say, what, do you think? You know, do you think I was born yesterday? Do you think I'm clueless as to what's going on here? So I'm not going to ask what you're thinking. I'm going to ask, do you think this and this is ridiculous. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? <laughs> Peter, do I need you? Do I need you to rescue me here? Do I need your help? Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? Do you think that somehow prayer stopped working tonight? Jesus is constantly in prayer. He is constantly before the father. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and... He will not at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. 
And the number on this is interesting. It's a massive number. Twelve legions. And, it, and I think it's a remarkable contrast when you can contrast the, the cohort that's referenced in John 18. You know, you recognize a cohort is a tenth of a legion. And, and if, in fact, the full cohort came out, there's 600 Roman soldiers here tonight to rescue Jesus. Or to arrest Jesus. Okay? If it's the full cohort. 600 Roman soldiers are backing up uh, however many officers the, uh, the uh, temple sent forth. And so here's a number that's 12 times, 10 times the number of Roman soldiers that's arresting Jesus. You follow that? 12 times, 10 times. Because 12 legions, more than 12 legions, he says. He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. And one legion would be 10 times what was sent to arrest him. And even one angel would have been enough anyway. <laughs> okay. Uh, we saw what one angel did to the Assyrians. In fact, we'll look at that here next. Um, but it's interesting. This is a possible prayer request. A possible prayer request. Was, was, Father, I need angels. Father, I need angels. I need angels now. Okay? <laughs> you know, like a Libyan ambassador saying, I need, uh, I'm under attack. I need, I need troops. Okay? Here's Jesus who could say, I'm surrounded. I need angels. Like in the Old Testament when that city was surrounded and Elisha had to show his servant. You know, all you see is the human beings surrounding us. I'm telling you that we outnumber them because of what you don't see. All right? This is actually uh, the basis of a hymn that I like very much called 10,000 Angels. If you're familiar with that, Ray Overholt. He's with the Lord now. Did you know that? I didn't realize that. Died in 2006. Came across his uh, obituary the other day. I was just kind of curious if he was still alive. I was kind of curious too if, um, if, um, oh, the guy that did our hymn, if he was still alive. And he's not either. Um, John W. Peterson, he's with the Lord now too. Um, it seems like more and more now everybody's going to be with the Lord and we're still stuck here. That's just. <laughs> Doesn't seem right. But 10,000 angels sells the Lord short. 10,000 angels. Okay? And that's the... There are actually several songs called 10,000 angels. Some secular, some spiritual, some country that are kind of a blend a little bit. Okay? It was uh, Mindy McCready, I think, sang in... in she wanted 10,000 angels to keep her from becoming sexually immoral with some boy that she liked. Um, okay, yeah, I guess there's there's less temptations there. And then 10,000 angels would successfully keep you away from, <laughs> away from that. But uh, the, the Ray Overhold hymn is much better. <laughs> that had the Lord called for these angels, he could have. He didn't have to be arrested. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. But what would the consequences have been? Then redemption would not have taken place. Propitiation would not have occurred. See, then it goes on to say, but he died alone for you and me. The point being, because he died alone, He's not going to stay alone for all eternity. Had he rescued himself from the cross, he would have stayed alone for all eternity. He would have remained the God-man. Hard to think in these terms. He would have remained the God-man, but he would have been the only man face-to-face -face with God the Father for all eternity. Because it was the Father's good pleasure to perfect the author of our sufferings that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In order for any other man to be with the Father for all eternity, then Jesus had to accomplish 
what he did. All right, 10,000 angels sells the Lord short. Actually, more than 12 legions is greater than 72,000 angels given the, the full Roman legion of 6,000 in that time. And 6,000, by the way, was supplemented by auxiliary units. You had engineers and carpenters and, and um, other uh, auxiliary units. More than 72,000 angels. Angel now... It is conceivable that he could have made such a request because angels can be tasked for human protection in warfare. And, you know, I, I prayed when I went to war. I, you know, trusted that I had at least one guardian angel and uh, said, you know, bring me back if, if that's your plan. Um, uh, you know, I had a kind of a, a preference to return back from Desert Storm and, and uh, I was engaged at the time and I kind of preferred to come back and get married someday and and, and the Lord did, you know, took care of me and, and everything else. Um, so angels can be tasked for human protection and warfare. And we see this. We'll come back next week. It's already 11 o'clock. Second Kings 6.17. That's the uh, Elisha and his servant episode. And then Second uh, Kings 19.35, where uh, the entire Assyrian invasion is decimated in one night. Uh, by a single angel, by the angel of the Lord. One angel by himself. Okay? Now, admittedly, it's the angel of the Lord. I don't know that Gabriel or some other lesser angel might have such might. But uh, in any event, 72,000 angels clearly would have rescued Jesus on this night. But see, Jesus knows that it would not be the Father's will. Since he knows it's not the Father's will, he doesn't ask for it. You ever ask for things you know aren't his will? an unbeliever that you're emotionally attached to and so you're asking for something that's not the Father's will. Okay? Or other, other things you might be praying for that you know aren't the Father's will. You're saying, well, well, if I can lead him to the Lord, then, then maybe it could become His will. Okay, well, then accomplish that first and then make your prayer request. <laughs> make your prayer request first. Change your prayer request to that person's salvation and leave off that other part but we, we, we know that's what you're really about, don't we? Quit, quit asking for things that aren't the Father's will. Otherwise, how then will the Scriptures be fulfilled? If you keep trying to achieve what's not the Father's will, what are you really doing? Alright, so we've got C, D, and E we'll cover next week, and then we'll move on to the message of irony under main point six. Father, thank you for your truth. Thy word is truth. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.